The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome, everybody, to the Main Street Vegan Show. It's so interesting how things work. I wanted to have my two guests on today for a very long time, and they're both fabulous. But what I didn't realize, other than that they have in common that they're both very hard to get, and we're very lucky to have them, is that they're both psychotherapists. So we're going to be talking today about some of the inner aspects of being vegan and being human in 2017. So after the break, I'll be bringing you Dr. Casey Taft from Vegan Publishers. And right now, I am very pleased and proud to introduce someone that you already know, Dr. Jen Mann. She's a licensed psychotherapist in private practice in Los Angeles, host and lead therapist on VH1's Couples Therapy, where she does intensive therapy with celebrity couples. She's appeared as a psychological expert on hundreds of TV shows, including Oprah, and she's a regular on the Today Show, The Early Show, and HLN. She hosts a daily call-in advice show called The Love and Sex Show with Dr. Jen on Sirius XM's Cosmo Radio, and she is the author of LA Times best-selling books, Super Baby, and the A to Z Guide to Raising Happy 
confident kids. She's the creator of the No More Diets iPad app based on her doctoral dissertation using the non-diet method for weight loss and eating disorders treatment. That's enough, right? Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) She also has an eco-friendly clothing line for adults, children, and infants called Retail Therapy. And all the T's and the onesies have positive feel-good messages, and they're all organic and recycled. And guess what? She has twins. Not a busy lady. Welcome, (laughs) Jen Mann. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for making the time. How old are these twins? They are now 10 years old. 10 and a half, technically. (laughs) (laughs) The best age. Boys or girls? Uh, Two girls, and I love this age. I'd like to freeze them at this age. It's a fantastic yeah. I think that God's two greatest pieces of handiwork are the baby piglet and the 10-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> well put. I Pretty would have perfect. to agree. <laughs> so you really are. As I was reading all your stuff, it's like this woman is a Renaissance therapist. I mean, you have so many interests. And I think in this day and age, when people get so specialized and so specialized, it's really difficult to kind of see the holistic view, and yet you're you're doing so much. Where do you get your energy? Well, first of all, I've been vegan now for, <clears throat> I think it's been almost six years, and I've been vegetarian since I was 10 years old. So, and I remember before I became vegan, I never, by the way, in a million years thought I would go vegan. I was very passionate about vegetarian, and I think like many people, I did not realize how the dairy industry contributes to the torture of animals and the killing of animals and the veal industry and all of that. I think I I just didn't know, and I think most people don't know. And I was enlightened by Kathy Freston, who has since become a dear friend, and she really changed my life. And when I started doing the research and realized not only how much longer people who are on a vegan diet live and the whole animal rights aspect of it, but also I kept reading these articles saying that people needed less sleep. At the time I was, you know, sleeping four hours a night anyway, I was like, wow, even less than this, who knows? So I, you know, I made the plunge and I have never looked back and I'm so glad that I did. It definitely gives me more energy. I feel great. And um, I also feel great morally and ethically that I am not contributing to the harm of animals. What a lovely thing to hear. And certainly your your mentor is one of the best. Kathy Let's Freston is just a saint among us. Yes, she, uh, is. she, she really, really is. She has helped so many people, and she has this wonderful gift of being able to find someone exactly where that person is, yep. and, and as the Quakers say, speaking to their condition. Yes. They're not trying to paste on her own agenda. She's yes. fabulous. Hey, Kathy, if you're listening. So one of the things, Dr. Jen, that you do, among many other things, is sports psychology, and I'm fascinated by fitness and by seeing all these vegans lifting huge weights and running long distances and never having been someone who felt all that motivated to be <laughs> majorly fit. Are there some elements of sports psychology that can help regular people get to the gym? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, just to kind of give a very brief connection to kind of what got me here is that 
I was an elite-level athlete. I did a sport called rhythmic gymnastics, the stuff with the ribbons, hoops, clubs, rope, ball. I was on the national team for about five years. And prior to making the national team, I was my first year at nationals. I was expected to make the national team, which is top 12. I missed making the team by .05. I came in 13th place. Oh. The following year, it's expected to be top six. I got a very low score, unexpected score on a great routine. My coach protested my score. I ended day one of the competition again in 13th place by .05. My mm. mom got down on her knees and prayed to God and said, please let this kid make the national team. I'll do anything. I'll quit smoking. The next day, I made the national team by the skin of my teeth. I was 12. My mom has never smoked again, and my dad quit as well. And by the way, my mom is now vegan. We're working on my dad, but my mom is vegan. But so the following year, I realized I'm training with the top coach in the country. I'm training with all of my major competitors. I need an edge that will put me ahead of them. And so I started reading sports psychology books myself. I was about 12, 13 years old, and I started implementing the things I had learned and coming up with my own techniques. And what happened was the following year, I got five gold medals out of five. I made the national team and won first place in everything. And what it made me realize is the importance of that mental aspect of everything we do. And oftentimes I get people who come to me because they are just burnt out on their regular exercise regimen or they're a golfer and they all of a sudden are not, you know, achieving what they want to achieve. Or sometimes it's Olympic caliber athletes. And there are a few things that are really important for people to know. One, the mind-body connection is incredibly real. Two, our self-talk very much dictates how we implement and how we um how we work. And so when we start to have that negative self-talk, we really need to reprogram the way we talk to ourselves. Also, that imagery, the act of imagining ourselves having successes, whether it is throwing the basketball in the hoop or, you know, really knocking it out of the ballpark when we do that presentation at work, it makes a huge difference. You know, I know it does. I have something hanging up now in my bedroom and in my bathroom that says that all the most successful people, when you ask what do they do when they get up first thing in the morning, it is work out. And I do know that that's true. If I expect to wait till afternoon, it's not happening. So there's something really powerful about feet touch the floor, body gets to gym. And and I also think that it's, Really what it is, is it's about knowing what works for you. Because like for me, I'm like you. If I don't work out first thing in the morning, it's not going to happen. Once my makeup is on, forget about it. Whereas my boyfriend, Eric Schiffer, who, by the way, is also a vegan, and he was on the cover of Vegan Lifestyle magazine and is a very successful entrepreneur, amazing guy. And you can find him at Eric Schiffer on uh, Twitter and Instagram and everything. But he, for him, working out late in the day is fine. You know, that like if when we work out on the weekends, we always have to kind of meet in the middle because I want to go first thing and he tends to want to go after he's done some work. So we kind of meet in, in the middle and we do a late morning, early afternoon. But it's really, there's some people who just really prefer to work out at night. And God bless those people. More power to them. But it's about knowing how you work. And a big part of sports psychology is setting small, manageable goals and knowing what works for you given your psyche and your lifestyle. Mm. Do you think that sometimes the way the fitness industry is set up is almost elitist, almost designed to scare off people 
who are maybe a little heavier, a little older, a little out of shape? I think there are more and more gyms that are geared towards the novice, you know, gyms like Curve. And there was a a gym that I went to that I'm forgetting the name of um, in Las Vegas that uh, there's a whole series of these gyms, a franchise, and it's really geared towards people, especially women who don't work out. There are lots of signs everywhere telling you what to do and where to go and, like, how to do it. And, you know, this is a judgment-free zone and, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, so I, I think that that, that is, is changing. I think it used to be that way for sure in the 80s and, and even the 90s. But I think that now it's, there's a, a real shift. Mm, well, that's good to know because I go to one that still has it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. uh, But now let me ask you about this, because this gets in a couple of your areas. It's a little bit about the athletic thing, and it's a lot about the relationship thing. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about how you advise people to respond when somebody close to them is making big changes. Maybe they're going vegan, they're getting healthy. In my life, my husband, who was already vegan, decided to become a real healthy vegan and a jock, and he just lost 50 pounds. And he's always kind of asking me how he looks, and I tease him that we need more mirrors. So (laughs) that used to be my job. You know, I, I came into this marriage as the one who was vegan and healthy and knew every nutritional component of every food. And now he's got this thing going on, which is great, but I've got to adapt. So Mm -hmm. how do we adapt when the people around us are transforming? Well, I I think it's a great question. And I I have a new book out that I'm very proud of called The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Six-Step Guide to Improving Communication, Connection, and Intimacy. And I talk a lot about that in the first chapter about communication and also about really understanding that we come into a relationship and there are certain unspoken rules. You know, you're the, whether it's, you're the one who takes out the garbage or you're the healthy one and I'm the one who eats junk food. Anytime we make a change in our relationship, even when it's a positive change, it has a ripple effect. And, it, and what most people don't realize is that it affects our partner. Again, even when it's positive, it affects our partner enormously. It affects our day-to-day interactions. It, it, it impacts that kind of shift in energy and sort of where our time goes and how we communicate. And I think really understanding that anytime you make a major shift in a relationship, there's a transition period. And it's important to have really good communication, to be aware with each other when we're annoying each other, when we're triggering each other. Like, it sounds like your husband constantly looking in the mirror, that even though you (laughs) joke about it, that it's kind of getting on your nerves. That, you know, that being able to say like, hey, I'm really happy for you with all of these shifts, but, you know, maybe you could do some of the mirror gazing on your own. I'd like to celebrate your wins with you, but I also feel like it's getting a little overboard, and I've noticed that it's kind of making me a little cranky. So I, I think really just having that awareness and that communication is key. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'll tell him that. I'll, I'll tell okay. him that. I came from a real expert. So how about mixed marriages? How about vegan and non-vegan? You know, that that is such a tough one. And I, and I have a lot of people in my practice who struggle with that or who are dating and don't want the pool to be too small where they say, you know, look, I don't want to only date vegan men because the pool is so small. You know, what are the odds if I'm with a meat eater that that he will shift? And, you know, look, I, I think that 
a few things. One is if you are someone who can't stand to be at the table with someone eating meat, then and you're super hardcore, then you don't want to be with a meat eater. On the other hand, I also think that if you're someone who, yes, you're passionate about your beliefs, you love to share them with other people, and you can also accept kind of like we were talking about with Kathy Frest, and you've got to meet people where they are, then I think you can really make it work. And I know a lot of vegans, and like you, I am very close with a lot of people in the community who have either a partner who is not vegan as well, but is somewhere on the spectrum of vegetarian, vegan, or who is with a meat eater. And, you know, it's definitely an issue, but I also think it's something that can be worked through. I know that that I've been in relationships with people who were hardcore carnivores who ultimately shifted to going vegan without me even asking just because I enlightened them about the medical information, about the animal torture information, about the environment information. And I think that most people, when they find out how this culture works when it comes to animals and and how we're kind of, how ingrained we are with our ideas about food and diet and meat, and when people are enlightened, they tend to make changes. Most people make changes, and and granted, there are some people who grew up in hardcore cultures where meat was really important, and those people tend to be the last holdouts, but even those people, when given the information, tend to ultimately make some changes. I love that, because it's something that if you hear it, and even more if you see it in a video or something like that, you can't unhear and see that. Yep. It's information you have to deal with in some way. Yeah. It, 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 like you said, it's very hard to unsee it. You know, it, it's the kind of stuff that, that haunts you. Mm. Well, let's move on to another of your many specialties, and that is eating disorders. This is close to my heart because I come from a compulsive eating background sure. that I left behind 33 years ago, I'm happy to say, and became right. vegan at the same time. So... <laughs> all is well. But when people have had eating disorders, particularly the restricting kinds of eating disorders, and they get help, and they're in recovery, and they have a therapist, they're very often discouraged about being vegan. Where do you come down on that? Um, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on eating disorders. I had an eating disorder myself for 10 years. I talked about it a lot on season three of Couples Therapy because I was working with Abby, who is um, Joe Francis's girlfriend, who was really struggling with an eating disorder, and I'm a big believer in sharing my own experiences to help other people heal. I am now at a point in my life where food is a non-issue for me. Yes, I'm vegan, but I'm not a restrictive eater. I, if you take one look on my Instagram, you can see the cannolis I ate at Candle 79 <laughs> this last weekend. So, you know, to me, being vegan, being vegetarian is not about restriction. And, and I understand that a lot of eating disorder specialists have concerns because there are people with eating disorders who just use being vegan or vegetarian as an excuse to restrict. And I get that, that there are people who are not well who use it in the wrong way. But I do think that it's very important when treating someone with an eating disorder that you understand what their morality is, what their ethics are, and that you work with them because 
you don't have to eat restrictive being vegan. You know, one look at my Instagram and anyone can see being vegan is not a restrictive experience. You can eat delicious, rich foods. You can eat healthy foods. You can eat junk foods. You can eat all kinds of foods being vegan. And I think it's very important that people who work in the eating disorder field are able to support people in recovery who choose to be vegan or vegetarian. That is so good to hear because... I know the joy that can come from finding that, that an activity in life, eating, that, that caused you pain and suffering yeah. and confusion can now be part of what helps you save lives and make the world kinder. So I hate to think and, of and anybody... When people are in the refeeding stage of an eating disorder, they have so much anxiety around food, and it's understandable, but to also have the anxiety of you have to eat this dead pig or you have to eat this dead cow, it, it's too much to ask, I think, for someone in, in recovery. Mm. Oh, oh, I wish you could be cloned and, and be helping <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of people, but that's part of what you do being in the media. That's kind uh, of absolutely. That's what that's what drew and, me to doing therapy on such a public scale and, and in the media and also to write my books. Right. Especially the, is, the relationship facts. What's your um Instagram by the way? It is Dr. Jen Man, two ends okay. on Jen, two ends on man. And that's also your Facebook and your Twitter, and we will put that and on my the Snapchat. Show and your Snapchat. You are all over the place. Yeah. Okay, excellent. We'll put that on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. I can't believe our time is almost up, but I do want to ask you one more question that I think is so important, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say. So as a psychotherapist and, and as a mom and a human being in 2017, what do you see is the connection between planetary health, the environment, the animals, and personal mental health? Um, well, I think that there is a really strong tie, and I think that, again, when you're educated and you know how your choices impact the environment, it allows you to make better choices and choices that make you feel good about yourself. I, you know, I watched Cowspiracy recently, and it really shocked even me, and I'm a pretty educated vegan on these issues, but I was shocked to the extent of the harm done to the environment with with the, the meat industry and the dairy industry. And so I, I think really, you know, what it all comes down to and whether it is about being vegan or whether it's about self-care or your own mental health or your business or exercising or anything, it's about us being educated and making choices that are based on the information that we have and also our moral and ethical beliefs. I believe that we all have a duty to be the best selves that we can be, both for ourselves and if you're in a relationship for your partner, and I talk about that a lot in the relationship fix, and that, you know, those kind of choices expand out into the world and the environment. And I, and I think that when we are all our best self, you know, the world is a better place. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. My you pleasure. Take a- 140 characters of that and put it over there at uh, Dr. Jen Mann on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful to hear, beautiful to read. Dr. Jen Mann, thank you so much. Thanks for your books and thanks for being on TV, making the world better and um, for being with 
all of the rest of us vegans on this oh, uh, world you. gentling path. Well, all thank the best. you for all the work that you do and the wonderful posts that you do. It, you really help make this approachable and really clear-cut and informative for everyone, vegans and non-vegans alike. And I have oh. no doubt that you have converted many, many, many people. Well, you just made my day, and the next time you're in New York, let's go to Candle 79 and eat good food together. I would love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care. Thanks so much. And everybody else, stay with us. We are going to be back after the break with Dr. Casey Taft. More about your brain. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. 
Welcome back, everybody. So happy to have you with us today for our Meet These Psychologists and Psychiatrists and People Who Know About How We Tick program. Fascinating, isn't it? We have all these wonderful people in the vegan world with so many areas of expertise. And my next guest is Casey Taft. In addition to his work managing vegan publishers, he is a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine, an internationally recognized researcher in the areas of trauma and the family, winning prestigious awards for his work. He also has been published in over 100 journals, also book chapters, scientific reports. He's consulted with the United Nations on preventing violence and abuse globally, and he sees the prevention of violence toward animals as a natural extension of this work. Well, Dr. Casey Taft, I'll bet everybody who's listening to this program agrees with you on that. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I've heard so many great things about you. It's funny how there are certain people in the movement that I haven't met personally, but I've heard all this buzz. (laughs) And you're you're one of those buzzy kind of people. So the first thing I want to ask you about is, is is you are the the publisher and I presume the founder of Vegan Publishers? Is this correct? Yes, yes, that's so, right. So in this era, when everybody says books are going the way of the Model T, you started <laughs> not only a publishing house but a vegan publishing house. Tell us I what. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a lot of people told me it wasn't a good idea, and maybe they were right. I don't know. It is pretty. It's a pretty tough time to be a small publisher right now. That, that's for sure. But uh, but I'm I am really glad we we did it. Um, it's it's really for my wife and I. It's really how we engage in the advocacy, and it's really uh, we've learned so much from it. And um, just trying to elevate others in the movement and kind of raise the platform, you know, of others who are promoting veganism is is really really worth worthwhile in spite of the difficulties being a small publisher. Well, I think even the big publishers would say this is a difficult time to be in the book business, and yet it's the most important time to read. I mean, we we hear sometimes that certain people in high places do not read, and that's that's just dangerous. (laughs) We, We need to be reading. So tell me about your authors. How do people come to you? Do they seek you out? Do you seek them out? How many titles do you publish a year? Sure. Yeah. Well. Well. First, uh, just building what you were saying, I, I do think it's really important um, for people to be reading, especially people in the animal movement. Well, I mean, not not necessarily, especially we all should be reading, but I feel like too many folks in the animal movement. It seems like sometimes, you know, especially younger vegans or people who are stressed out and have a lot of other stuff going on, they don't really take the time to read the the writings of of those who have come before and those who've thought a lot about these issues and animal rights philosophy and theory and and all that kind of stuff. So I do think that that's really important. Um, And that that is really what we try to promote, try to get people to read more about um, issues related to veganism. So we published about roughly about 20 books so far and, We've been in existence for a little bit, a little bit over three, three to four years or so, um, and it's been a mix of how we, how we decide to take on an author. We do have a submissions section on our website where authors will 
send us their ideas. And we also sometimes go out and and ask others um, if if they'd be interested in writing writing a book for us. So we, we, it's kind of a little bit of a little bit of each. Because I know that there are people who who have a book in them, but they don't know if they should go to a publisher, if they should go to an agent, just how to go about it. I used to teach mm-hmm. classes in how to get published, but now it's such a different world. I'm not even sure what to tell people when they call and ask me, which is part of why I'm asking you, because I know it's something that people are interested in. Right, yeah. Yeah, and especially yeah, we get a, we do get a lot of submissions. So people aren't shy about submitting ideas to us, especially children's books. It seems like everybody has a children's book in them. <laughs> or, yeah. Um, so you know, I, I think our, our approach in terms of selecting books and deciding what to take on is is and and this is probably because of my background in academia, where we really think about what's out there and what's what's missing. You know what? What what perspective haven't we really heard about yet, or what needs more attention? Um, it's not, and we don't. It's not necessarily about what's the most sellable, although that's also in, important if we want to stay in business. <laughs> but but mostly it's thinking about well, what what hasn't been done yet? You know, what topic really needs to be covered? So that's really how we decide to take on a book or not. And mm-hmm. you know, fortunately, as a vegan publisher. And uh, there's a lot of topics that really haven't been fully developed and there aren't really good books on. So at this point, there still are, you know, a lot of kind of big topic areas that that could use more exposure. What do you think are those some of those areas that because it seems to me sometimes as I look at my shelves and shelves of vegan books, remembering (laughs) when there were three vegan books, (laughs) what's what's missing? Right, right. Well, you know, we could talk about adult books and children's books. You know, for adult books, um, well, just to give some examples of books that we published, um, like we recently published a book uh, written by a former uh, vivisectionist about, and he's now vegan, uh, about his experiences as a vivisectionist. So to get that perspective of of somebody who's kind of made that transformation and, and, you know, things that he had done and guilt that he feels about it, you know, that's a perspective you don't really hear much. You, know, you don't really hear too much. We have books on vegan travel, um, books on uh, Robert Grillo wrote this great book called Farm to Fable that talks oh, about wonderful. all the ways. Yeah, yeah we had the him on the, the show. Advertising. Oh, right, right. Yeah, just all the ways that we are kind of taught to do harm to non-human animals and how, you know, the role the advertising plays and kind of our major societal institutions. So just more about how we're all kind of programmed to do harm to animals. And there, there hasn't, hadn't been too much um, written along those lines. Um, but we're inter- interested on books that take a more pro-intersectional perspective because we think that's important and there really hasn't been much published in, in that area. In terms of children's books, really just kind of basic concepts are what we're most interested in right now because in children's books, there really are not many vegan-themed books out there. For example, we're doing a crowdfunding campaign for a book called That's Not My Mama's Milk right now. And it's a very basic concept of showing non-human animals feeding their young, feeding milk to their young, and really just kind of trying to reconnect us with, with you know, our, our true nature that 
our milk is meant for our own young. So teaching kids that really basic concept that a lot of adults don't seem to don't seem to understand either. Yes. Uh, you know, you would think there would be a book like that out there, but there really isn't anything like that. So well, in the there will be area. Yeah, right. There will be soon. Well, um, thanks, thanks for of- indulging us and showing your, your publisher side. Um, but I do <laughs> want to sure. talk to you also about your psychological side and particularly your book, Motivational Methods for Vegan Advocacy, A Clinical Psychology Perspective. So you know how to help us bring people over. What do we need to know first? Yeah, so, and, and you know, when we started Vegan Publishers, I never really was planning on writing anything myself, and that, that wasn't really why we started it. But the more, the more active we became in the animal advocacy community, the more... I, you know, as a psychologist and somebody who be who works with really unmotivated treatment populations, that's really kind of my specialty. Somebody who was doing that work, I just, I just couldn't. It, it just became increasingly frustrating how you know basic ideas and concepts from clinical psychology weren't really considered or applied in animal advocacy and. Some, some animal advocates and some kind of of the mainstream advocacy groups would sort of touch on some of these concepts but not really, not really fully kind of bring them into the fold in, in, in the animal advocacy community. So I, I really felt compelled to write a book about, you know, what we know from clinical psychology about how to bring about change and how to motivate people to change. So that's really what, what that book was about. So... I know that that in your your book you say that there are certain people within the animal protection community who are absolutely sure that their approach is the best one, but that's <laughs> largely oftentimes just their opinion. Is that correct? Well, yeah. I mean, I, that's true. I, I mean, all of it is our opinion. Even what I say is my opinion. You know, just because I'm a psychologist who's done a lot of research doesn't mean that you know my way is right and I know more than everybody else. And I think I think it is true that you get these you get people who are very kind of set in their beliefs and their ideas, and they talk about how there's this kind of one magical message that we need to put out there, and it's going to turn everybody vegan. But we all know if there was such a you know one magical message that worked for everyone, that we would all be doing it, and everybody would be vegan. Uh, so it's it's much more complicated than that, and. Um, and it's, you know, in some ways, animal advocacy is really sort of um, like an art form because we really have to learn how to understand other people, where they're coming from, kind of what stage of readiness they're in to receive a message, and then we need to find the, the message that might help them and move, you know, move to that next stage in their own readiness. So there's really, there's really a, a lot to it. So... I think what you're saying is that if we look at some of these things that are known about how people make changes in areas of life that have nothing to do with animals or veganism, that we can take some of those and apply them here. Is that right? Yeah, because really there are kind of basic rules for change that have been shown, you know, time and time again to be really important that um, regardless of the population we're dealing with. So in my, in my day job, I work on ending violence among, you know, domestically violent men primarily. Um, But many of the same kinds of 
theories and strategies I use with them also applies for a variety of other problems and, and other issues. You know, things like uh, there are or things like goal setting. So th there's a whole literature, a large field on the importance of setting really clear goals. And there's a lot of research that shows that the more specific the goal is, the better. The more difficult the goal is, the more likely you're to see change. So setting really specific goals such as veganism, trying to help people set that vegan goal, um, you know, would seem to be a lot more effective, would be much more helpful in helping people change than to just tell people, well, just do the best that you can. You know, I know it's hard to go vegan and see what you can do. You know, see if you can cut down on using animals or eating animals or whatever. Um, things like recognizing what stage of change somebody is in has been shown to be really important regardless of the problem we're talking about. So try to figure out kind of how ready that person is to change and then to meet them where they are in, ter in terms of the stage they're at to help get them to that next level. Again, there's an entire literature on this, and it's been shown to be important in ev every, other, every kind of behavior you can think of in psychology. Fascinating. Do you see the connection between violence toward animals and violence towards humans? Yeah, in, in absolutely. Absolutely. I, and and that, that's also something that's been demonstrated with research. We, we know, you know, children who engage in violence towards non-human animals are more likely to grow up to be violent themselves. You know, most of the serial killers um, that, you know, that we all we all learn about have some kind of history of being violent towards non-human animals. Um, and, and obviously, you know, if we grow up thinking that other, that some are, some animals, you know, human or non-human are lesser than others, kind of growing up with speciesism, it, it naturally follows that we're going to carry those same kinds of attitudes towards all other people, not just non-human animals, but other humans, et cetera. So kind of setting, setting us up from the beginning to think of ourselves as somehow better than others or others as lesser as, as us is, is obviously setting us up for violence and, and kind of uh, oppressive behavior towards others. So in your own life, Casey, when did the veganism enter in? I mean, it looks to me as I look at your CV that you spent about 100 years in school, but you look really young, so you must have done it quickly. And yet, with all of this knowledge that you were acquiring, how, how did you find veganism? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a good question. And I, for me, I started, so I, yeah, I was in the the violence prevention world for many years before I went vegan. And um, unfortunately, many of my colleagues, you know, kind of leading experts in preventing and ending violence towards humans are completely cut off with the, with the harm that they directly contribute to uh, with respect to non-humans. Non and I, you know, I was in that same boat. I think at some level throughout my life, I, 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 I did, uh, I, I did all, I, I did at some level understand 
the how it was wrong that what we were doing to other other animals like for example i mean i think back now to my father trying to take me fishing and, and i would refuse to put a worm on a hook because he would squirm and it was too upsetting to me and i would never eat seafood or anything that looked like an animal because i because it just became too obvious what what i was eating and what i was doing um, so at some level, I, I, I think I always knew. I remember, even when I was in my 20s, I was in graduate school, I dated an animal rights activist for a little while, and she would start to tell me about all these you know, terrible things we do to animals. And at some level, you know, basically, I, I think I asked her not to talk to me about it anymore because I knew, I knew that you know, the more I listened that I was going to have to go vegan. And, and, I, and I, at the time, you know, I think <laughs> through you know, a big chunk of my adulthood, I was just trying to get my life together, and I felt like, I had too many problems, too many issues to deal with before I could make changes like that. So it wasn't until later where, where I made the, made the connection when I was, you know, after grad school. And what happened to me was I, I you know, from years of living badly in grad school, my body, my immune system essentially gave, gave up on me and I developed all kinds of health issues. That's when I went vegan and gluten-free and I did that for a while. And I, I viewed the ethical part of it as as really kind of a, a side benefit you know I thought it was good for my karma if I stopped eating animals but that's not really why I was doing it and it it wasn't until later on that I made the connection and really it was when a friend of mine a vegan friend we were at a violence uh, violence conference a conference about violence against women a vegan friend of mine really directly confronted me about it um, because I was still, you know, occasionally have dairy or, or whatnot. And she directly asked me, you know, why I wasn't, you know, truly vegan. And at that point, it really, I really just made the connection and I realized that she was right. And, and I, I couldn't justify continuing to consume any, you know, animal products in any way. So at that point, I, I realized it was, it was time to do it. And um, my veganism has gotten much stronger since then. That is really fascinating because what you experienced at the nonviolence conferences, um, a gentleman who's been on the show, Paul K. Chappell, who's with the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, said that for years he would go to all these major peace conferences and he would be the only vegetarian, much less vegan, <laughs> that he could find. Right. That it's a little exactly. bit better now. But you'd, you'd think that in these areas where people have awakened to some of the problem, that it would just be easier to awaken to more. But I guess that's why we need your book, Motivational Methods for Vegan Advocacy, so that we can uh, speak up in a way that is kind and clear and effective. So you have another right. book. Um, I think it's newer, The Millennial Vegan. Right. Yep. That came out a few months ago. Ooh, that is new. Tell us about that one. That was a book I, I wrote um, because I, I wrote it for younger vegans, you know, millennials between the ages of 15 and 34. And the reason I, I wrote that one was because as the person who is running our Facebook page for vegan publishers, I was getting a flood of messages from younger vegans um, who were kind of seeking help and seeking support. You know, many of them were still living with their family members. Some of them, their their parents were, were forcing them to eat animals. And some of them wrote about bullying they were experiencing, you know, from their peers because they were vegan. Um, just all different kinds of issues. Um, 
folks would email me about, message me about, and then I would see it online. And it really struck me that there were no books uh, that were specifically geared towards this demographic, you know, young, younger vegans. There are children's books and there are books for adults, but there really isn't much for those in between. So I really wrote the book for just to provide a resource for them um, and to you know, help, help them, you know, as best I could kind of navigate through a lot of these tricky issues. Great. Well, that is certainly the most rapidly growing demographic in, in the vegan movement. And they're so excited and so energetic and so eager to carry the message. So thanks yeah. for helping them do that. The millennial vegan, if anybody's listening, who is a millennial or who is the parent of a millennial, be sure and take a look at that. So Casey, just in our last few minutes here, I know that, that you and, and vegan publishers are not just looking at, oh, veganism, you know, don't hurt animals and the world will all be perfect. You see that there are lots of kinds of injustice. They do intersect and animals are in there as well. So give me your take on the intersectionality thing. Yeah, yeah. So there is is a kind of a growing pro-intersectional movement within the vegan community, while at the same time there seems to be a lot of backlash against that. So that is something that I talk about and I wrote about in both of my books. And I, I think it's so important for us to broaden our, our reach, to connect with other social justice movements, and to show others who are experiencing injustice, oppression, that we um, care about them, that, that we, want, we are, want to fight you know, against the other forms of injustice and, and oppression as well. You know, if, if, if we promote ourselves as only kind of a, a white movement, you know, only for kind of well-to-do white people um, and, not, and not others, you know, other groups who are experiencing various forms of injustice, then, then we don't really stand a chance. You know, we don't, we don't stand a chance for growing our movement and having, you know, the impact we need to have for non-human animals. And we're also not, we're also not doing anything about the injustice that, that other humans are experiencing too. But with all the, with all the, you know, terrible things going on in the world, if we really want to kind of be effective and to create big change, then we're really going to need to find a way to kind of band together with others and try to produce change on, on a, a bigger level. I think that's really important and always, I mean, as long as I've been around this work, which is getting to be up in the 40-year <laughs> mark now, mm-hmm. is, the, is the, but you only care about animals. And right. it's just exactly. like, I mean, if I were working with the blind, would you tell me that I was wrong to not be working with the deaf? You know, you can't do everything actively, but you can care holistically. Right. Well, unfortunately, now nowadays there seems to be a large or a growing number of animal advocates who will directly say, I only care about non-human animals. They'll say, you know, screw humans. I don't care about humans at all. I don't care about, you know, racism or anything else that, you know, the animal Holocaust is the worst, is the, the largest, you know, the biggest problem we have. So forget everything else. I'm just going to fight for animals. And unfortunately, the message that gets delivered is that, you know, that, um, you know, that the vegan movement is a white movement that is not intersectional and doesn't really care about, you know, all the terrible things that other people are experiencing. So I think we need to 
continue to to promote you know a more intersectional a, a approach and kind of fight against some of some of these ideas that come up and and that that kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning where I think we as animal advocates really should learn as much as we can. You know, I think a lot of people reject this pro-intersectional message because it feels too difficult for them to learn about other forms of injustice or to think more holistically about preventing violence. But really, if you go back to how, you know, the beginning of veganism and folks, you know, such as, you know, at the Vegan Society and Donald Watson, they were all kind of um, they were all about world peace and they were anti-war and they they thought of veganism as a social justice issue and I think we need to make sure we, we, we stay, you know, we continue with that vision. I completely agree. When I came into it and my mentor was Jay Dinshaw from the American Vegan Society, I, mean, I was really handed this this huge body of moral information that that right. that veganism simply expands on ethics eastern and western from from the past right. 2000 years although i guess as i learned from the late rinberry the great historian that there was one historic exception to that and that was leonardo da vinci who evidently loved animals it's believed that he was vegetarian it's known that he set birds free in the marketplace but evidently mm -hmm. He, he didn't like people at all, and if right. they had had the technology to actually build some of the weapons that he designed, oh, things no. would have been worse in his era than they actually yeah. were. So I guess um, in some ways we haven't changed much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... You know, I, I I get I get that. Like I, I I feel the frustration too, and I get angry too. You know, any anybody who cares about non-human animals gets angry when we see about the horrible things that other humans do to them, and the horrible things that we do to other humans as well. So I I get that, but I think you know if we want to be if we want to help other people go vegan, if we want to create more change, then having that skeptical view and just thinking that all humans are terrible is going to make it a lot harder to connect with other people and and help bring about that change. That's so true. And the way that I know that almost all humans are really, really cool, even regarding animals, is when they actually can see the animal. I, I mm -hmm. always talk about that having lunch at a sidewalk cafe and all these women are having their chicken salad and they see the injured pigeon. And I mean, you you would just think it was the greatest tragedy on earth. Everybody has to do her part in saving the pigeon. And they don't extrapolate that and to bring it over to the salad but the the kindness is somehow there if we can awaken it through mm -hmm. motivational methods for vegan advocacy <laughs> right yeah exactly well this is so important and so fascinating casey taft thank you for everything you say everything you write every book you publish i look forward to meeting you in um the regular multi-dimensional world and um, <laughs> Likewise, uh, wonderful, I'm wonderful. Sure we will. I think we've been at some of the same places at different times, but we never actually got a chance to connect. But I'm sure we will soon. We, we will. Absolutely. So everybody, I'm going to put URLs for both Dr. Jen Manns and Dr. Casey Taft's um, information, their social media, their website 
on the MainStreetVegan.net website. Just click on podcast and you'll get a nice little drop down box to that. So you can just find out all kinds of things about these people and and order their books. You know, we've got uh, the relationship book, the new one from, from Dr. Mann and the Millennial Vegan and Motivational Methods for Vegan Advocacy from Casey Taft. See, lots of reading. Summer's coming. You can go to the beach and read yourself a great, important book. Next week, Dr. John McDougall is coming back, the curmudgeon who likes starch and loves this planet, and you guys love him too and really requested that he come back. So he is. Thanks to Unity Online Radio, our engineer Jeff Comfort, and thanks to you, our listener. God bless. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Does the idea of being a vegetarian or a vegan intrigue you? Is it something you've pondered? Listen each week as Victoria Moran, author of Main Street Vegan, shows you how to make the shift to a sustainable lifestyle for both you and the planet. Each week you'll learn about the latest on the vegan life. It's not just for celebrities and moguls, but for people just like you who want to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Guests will range from unity ministers to vegan authors, activists, physicians, chefs, and even some of those glittery celebs. There'll be recipes, ideas, tips for going vegan at your own pace, and ways to make a difference for animals and the planet at every meal. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time for Main Street Vegan, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Dorothy Day, a co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement in America, called for not a revolution of arms, but a revolution of the heart. Since the beginning of our nation, the American Revolutionary War, and long before that, actually, there's not been a time without conflict somewhere in the world. Makes you stop and think, doesn't it? Certainly, we live in challenging times. Each day brings seemingly limitless opportunities to take offense. And each opportunity offers me a choice. I can give a knee-jerk response in fear or anger, or I can choose consciously to respond in love. My choice may seem insignificant. After all, I'm only one person. But as history has taught us, one person can make a difference. Peace can begin with me. To find a Unity Church near you, please visit our website at www.unity.org. experience the peace and joy promised by A Course in Miracles? Or are you still struggling to truly live your beliefs from moment to moment? Let Rev. Jennifer Hadley help you focus on your intent to be the love. 
Be the peace through practical application by walking your talk. Experience the healing live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central on A Course in Miracles, Living the Love, Walking the Talk, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.